The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Can you ask John Gibbons why my wood pellets from my wood pellet boiler are after doubling in price? I was paying €450 for a tonne last year. Today it's €899. This is a carbon neutral home heating fuel and is still going up in price. Why would it? Uh, Good evening, Matt. I can't imagine uh, that it has anything to do with the overall thing. I think that's probably something uh, your listener would need to take back to their wholesaler. I don't see any particular reason. uh, Shipping costs have probably gone up. There's probably going to be some sort of excuse that the price of all fuels have gone up. It sounds a little like uh, somebody has decided that there's a strong demand for solid fuels this winter and we're going to just put the price up because the chances are that that wood is probably being produced here in Ireland. So should that price double? I don't see why. I mean, we have inflation for sure but what's that running eight or nine percent so i would suggest uh your listener needs to shop around okay was the budget good for global warming the environment all that sort of things yeah i listened to it matt with great interest and and particularly listened to the minister for finance when he prefaced it by saying uh climate change the biggest issue of our time etc etc so i was sitting there bracing for uh if you like uh the the phase shift that we've been waiting for. This is basically where the Irish government takes the climate and biodiversity emergency that they declared in March 2019, and here we are, two and a half years later, they're finally going to get serious and say, right, this goes front and centre. And and we have, as you know, good example of what happens when a government goes into emergency mode. We saw it, obviously, during the COVID crisis. uh, And a place I'd like to start on this, if I might, and, and I know this is a slightly circular way of answering your question, but during the COVID crisis, we had morning, noon and night through all media a sustained, coordinated government campaign explaining what the problem was, how we would deal with it, what the solutions were and how to look after one another. Now, the climate and biodiversity emergency by any stretch, Matt, is every bit, in fact, by many calculations, a far greater threat than the COVID ever was. Yet we have seen no sense of emergency. And I think this is really important because without that, the ordinary public are hearing about climate change every day of the week. You walk up the street, you see headlines about here and there. But what they're not getting from their government yet is that sense that they have pushed the red button and they've declared an emergency and that they're facing up to the public to say, listen, guys, we're in for tough times. We've got to make difficult decisions, but we want you with us. At the moment, I think we're still in what I would think of as a sort of the phony war phase, Matt, where we're talking a good fight about climate change, but we haven't taken the actions. But hold on, didn't carbon taxes go up? Despite many people who were saying, don't put them up, we can't afford to put them up. They put them up and the money was ring-fenced and is going into all sorts of environmental projects. Now, of course, that carbon tax, as you know, the, the seven the seven uh, euro fifty increase, that was actually locked in in the budget in 2020 and that will continue. I think it went to 47.50 uh, this time. Yes. That will continue all the way to 100 euros a tonne. Now, In reality, if we were to put a proper price on a tonne of carbon released into the atmosphere, depending on who you ask, the real cost is somewhere between a thousand and a hundred thousand dollars or euros per tonne released. So 47 euros, is that going to change anything? And on carbon trading markets in Europe, for example, you can buy, quote, the right to emit a a tonne of carbon for three to five euros. So nowhere yet are we seeing the signals, the market signals that say to people, we have got to rapidly transition away from a carbon intensive system. Now, I think 
we're obviously all of this is happening in the context of clearly of an energy emergency with the the Ukraine war and so on. This does really present, and I think the minister sort of touched on it without actually grasping it. It presents a once, if you like, in a generation opportunity to break through and transition. We have solutions on this island uh, to our energy crisis and to our climate crisis. We know we have the best renewable energy resources in Western Europe, arguably in the world, yet we're still sitting on our hands. You've spoken about this before. We haven't yet moved uh, in relation to offshore wind. Now, hopefully we will do so by the end of this decade. And I appreciate that between now and the end of the decade, people want to keep the lights on that. I totally understand that. But until we change direction and until the government are putting out the the messages that let people know, Matt, that we're in an emergency. Okay, John, can I put it to you that what we actually need is instead of sort of tinkering around the edges in relation to what individuals are expected to do. The government should be accelerating the process by which they can bring offshore wind energy onshore and store it and distribute it. That should be the absolute priority. And that has been staring us in the face for years. And there were commitments made in the budget towards putting processes in place, which should have been done years ago. And my fear would be it won't be done this year and it won't be done next year. It'll all fall behind schedule. Like everything, unless it's COVID or dealing with the financial crash of a decade or so more ago, everything else is just done at a glacial pace. There's not enough urgency. I think I, I couldn't, I really couldn't disagree with that analysis. And on top of that, uh, we had a fantastic opportunity, say, in the transition to get people to, to involved, if you like, as what they call energy prosumers. In other words, to be producers and consumers. The best and easiest way for most people listening to us today, Matt, is to put solar panels on your house. If you if you have a house, put solar panels on it. Now, we have at the moment, the maximum grant available from the government for that is €2,400. I had a look at this. In fact, your VAT bill could be up to €2,400, maybe €2,000. So in reality, all we're doing is we're tinkering around. We give a little grant, we take it back in VAT. We had an opportunity in this budget to say, look, we want, for example, a million homes in Ireland to have solar panels. We want to get a gigawatt of solar energy on the system. In Germany, for example, not renowned, if you like, for renewable energy, they achieve this really quickly by promoting solar PV. They now have 10% of their total energy system in a very large industrial country is coming from solar. Much of that, Matt, from rooftop solar. We need to be far more radical. And this comes back to this language. I said at the outset, where is the communication? Where is the urgency? Where is the government campaign on the radio, on the TV, on the internet, on both sides saying, guys, we're in an emergency. Here's what we're going to do. Okay, there's a listener who actually says the reason that the wood pallets have gone up in price is because gas is a large component in their processing and production. That makes sense. We have supply chain issues here all over the place. But I wouldn't also rule out a, a little bit of gouging. Okay, um, motoring issues as well in relation to it. I mean, I saw you tweeting today about electric cars. I mean, I've been down in Kerry. You just can't get somewhere to recharge your car. So how can we encourage people to change for electric cars if there aren't the recharging points. Yeah, this is completely baffling. We we have certain state agencies. Uh, you know, you think of Quilcha, you think of Bordnamona, who at least are in transition, and you think of the ESB, where we actually, we the state, control these agencies. And yet, in the case, for example, the ESB, 10 years ago, they were on a path. I remember reading an article by uh, the ESB chief executive back in 2010 that by 2020, we would have completed the transition towards renewable energy. That got thrown out the window, Matt, for political reasons, and the ESB essentially responds to its political masters. Now, there are new masters in town and obviously only a small piece of the current government has a green component and my fear is that it's still too small a piece. We need to get the ESB to 
roll out a serious uh, infrastructure for, for EV charging. And of course, we also need to move towards active travel all over the place. Let's just move away from the budget for a moment. What, tell me about the new report published this week, The State of the World's Birds. Yeah, this report is, uh, this is by BirdLife International. They produce this map every four years. So it's a sort of a state of the nation type, type report. And what it found is that, first of all, over the last 50 years, they found that, uh, about nearly three billion birds have been destroyed just in the US. Um, that works out an average about 60 million birds a year. It's over a million birds a week being destroyed. Globally, what they found is that 49% of bird species are declining. One in eight bird species globally are threatened with extinction, which is an absolutely gobsmacking uh, thing to consider. Bear in mind, Matt, that the modern birds are the last living descendants of the dinosaurs. That's how old birds are. They're vastly older than than, uh, mammals even. They, They predate mammals. And here we are in this extraordinary moment in human history where birds which have ruled, if you like, ruled the roost, if I, if I can use that phrase, for hundreds of millions of years. We're now looking globally at a collapse in bird species and bird numbers right across the world. Finally, are you making any link between Hurricane Ian and global warming? Yeah, absolutely. But the evidence on this is fairly fairly clear. We know, for example, that the, the so-called rocket fuel, the stuff that drives uh, extreme weather, particularly hurricanes, is surface water temperatures. We know, in, for example, right now in the Caribbean Ocean, surface water temperatures are more than one degree above where they should be. That is the fuel, the energy that drives these storms forward. We also know, for example, that... Uh, what they call a rapid strengthening of hurricanes is also uh, connected to global warming effects. And we know, uh, for example, that the 10-year running total of storms in the Atlantic and the Eastern Pacific, that what they call rapidly intensified, that has increased by 35% between 1980 and 2020. So, Global warming does not create hurricanes. But what it does, once a hurricane system begins to develop, what global warming does is it gives it the energy and it gives it the fuel to become really, really nasty, to explode, for example, really quickly into a Category 4 and a Category 5. We also know, Matt, that these storms, these hurricanes, are now riding in on elevated sea levels. And, of course, that is something that we're with for the very long time. Florida, for example, uh, as a home to many climate deniers in the US, is a case in point where that particular state is facing wide-scale inundation by mid-century. We have to leave it there. Thank you very much, John Gibbons. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today